Um, so yeah, good morning everybody, I'm Jonathan. If you haven't met me, I think I've met most of you. And welcome if you are new. Um, great to be together. And um, yeah, this morning we're wrapping up the series uh, on bearing fruit. That one. And uh, next week we're starting a new teaching series based on um, out of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, that kind of region of the Old Testament, which is going to be a nice change of pace and change of scene, which I'm looking forward to. Although uh, it's been a wonderful uh, series, I think. I've really enjoyed this one that we've been in. Um, this this thing around, what does it look like to be a fruitful community? Um, and as you may know, um, this this series on bearing fruit actually came out of a series we were doing earlier on the Holy Spirit. So today's really the conclusion of a big arc, in a sense, of where we've been going as a church. A big story that actually began in autumn and now we're just on the cusp of spring. So it's carried us through winter. And I'm really glad that we've spent so much time on this topic. You know, uh, I don't apologize for it. I, I think it's really significant that we've been able to just settle deeply into this thing of who is the Holy Spirit and what is his work in, in our church and our lives. Um, it certainly doesn't feel like we've exhausted the topic. It doesn't feel like we've run out of things to say when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Um, and we're not going to stop talking about the Holy Spirit either. Um, but it feels like, I guess, a deeper, maybe a deeper appreciation for the role of the Spirit and what He does in our life together. Um, and it also, you know, given that we're in a bit of a new season as a church, um, it feels like a good thing to sort of set that as the bedrock again, that we are people of the Spirit. That's who we are. Um, and without the gift of the Spirit, and without the gifts of the Spirit, well, we'd probably still be in some locked upper room somewhere, waiting for further instructions. But the Spirit has has, has filled our hearts, and He's sent us out into the world. So... Um, yeah, like I said, over the last months, we've, we've been focused on this thing of how the Spirit is shaping us, you know, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, um, into this people who carry God's name, um, which is an Old Testament phrase, people who carry God's name. It just means people who, who bear his image in the world, people who, who show the face of God to the world, who display his character and who embody his life together. And, um, you know, while we... I think proudly call ourselves people of the Spirit. Um, but that doesn't mean that we uh, elevate the Holy Spirit above Jesus or above the Father. You know, we're very Trinitarian in that sense too. There's no hierarchy within the Trinity. Um, however, as you know, as, as people of the Spirit, we acknowledge that it's the Spirit who really, um, who uniquely draws us into fellowship with God, with the Son and with the Father. The Spirit is sort of the first port of call for a Christian. It's our first encounter with with the living God. We experience the Holy Spirit as God's personal empowering presence. It's where we encounter God's person, personhood in a sense. Um, and we also experience the Holy Spirit within our fellowship, dwelling within our fellowship and uniting us together as a people, just as the Spirit unites the Son with the Father. Um, I have some slides. Let's see if they work. Yeah. This image of a jigsaw puzzle has been on my mind on, on this topic. You know, the way the Spirit unites us into a body is a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle, I think, um, with each each piece finding its place in the larger whole. And so, like a jigsaw puzzle, I think what God's doing with us as a people is not random. It's not, uh, it's not arbitrary or haphazard. There's actually a pattern which God is working to as he shapes us. Um, it's not just an accidental outcome of who walks through the door. 
It's actually God's work shaping us into something. And he has something in mind. He's not kind of making it up as he goes. He's actually, there's a sovereignty in this, that God's doing something. Um, the pattern is preordained, if you like. And um, what is that pattern? Well, it's shaping us into a people who look like Christ. So let's just stay with that thought for a moment, I think, this thing of uh, uh, a jigsaw puzzle. So if we are, as a church, a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, I guess that means that um, that nothing in in life that God is doing is random. He's shaping us carefully and deliberately. He's orienting us towards each other. He's finding the way different pieces fit together. Um, perhaps working on some of the rough edges, um, you know, um, perhaps looking at where the colors are, looking at where, where we fit within this big picture. Um, he's doing it within each of us, but he's doing it with us together. And he's doing it with the intention that all of our different parts of life would work together, that we would sort of have this functionality um, as a people. And I find that pretty reassuring, you know. I, I find it reassuring and encouraging to know that um, what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life, Kevin, affects me. You know, it, it, what, what he's doing in your life, Atasi, what he's doing in Lance's life, what he's doing in Johnny's life. Each of our lives, he is at work, and he's working individually, and he's working collectively to shape us. I think it's great. You know, when we're praying for Rosemary, as she's making her way back home from Zambia, or Nikki, as she cares for her parents, you know, we trust that what he's doing with them is shaping them, and what he's doing with us is shaping us, and he's knitting us together. So, um, yeah, when the Apostle Paul um, was writing his letters, I don't think they'd invented jigsaws, uh, at that time, but if they had, I'm sure he would have used a jigsaw as a metaphor. Um, but instead, he spoke of fruit. He spoke of um, fruit, uh, particularly he spoke of these nine different fruit in the um, letter to the Galatians. He spoke of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, and each of these fruit, again, are just reflections of the life of Jesus. They're things which Jesus start, um, embodies. They're things which Paul wasn't making up. Um, as a grab bag of ideas that they were just, it was Paul thinking, this is who God is, this is what God's like, the Spirit of God and Jesus. So they were visible in Jesus' life. Um, but I think, you know, the principle is the same with the fruit and with the jigsaw, you know. The church is a bit like a, an orchard or a bit like a, a veggie garden, if you like. Um, it's a mix of different people with different gifts, different qualities that the Holy Spirit is using to announce the whole. Now, does anybody know about companion planting? It's the, it's the rage in uh, the veggie gardening world. <laughs> um, companion planting is all about how the different species work together. Um, so any good gardeners will know, you know that you've got to group certain plants together, and as you do, they enhance the life of the, of the other plants and they enhance the whole life of the garden. So certain plants, when you put them together, are mutually beneficial. They create an ecosystem together. Um, and according to tuigarden.co.nz, um, <laughs> companion planting is a great way to repel insects, attract pollinators, and beneficial insects to the garden, along with helping to improve soil fertility. It also offers spatial benefits. For example, tall-growing, sun-loving uh, sun plants may share space with lower-growing, shade-tolerant plants. Now, 
garden metaphors are just awesome, eh? There's so many ways we could use that, so many places we could go. So I have to be a little bit careful not to not get too excited. But you get the point, eh? You get the point. This is what the church is. We're, we're, a, we're a garden, we're an orchard, we're a jigsaw puzzle, whatever you like. So a couple more thoughts just before I go on to talk about goodness. Um, I think it would be, uh, it wouldn't be a sin, but it would be a mistake to, to think that these nine fruits in the list in Galatians is an exhaustive picture of what Christian community is meant to look like. It's not like this is all there is. Um, Paul probably chose those nine for, for reasons related to what was going on in that church, you know. Um, he was writing timely letters to specific communities with specific things that were happening. So if you look at Galatians 5:19 to 21, that before the fruit of the Spirit, you'll see um, that it's a pretty dysfunctional church. Um, very weird stuff going on there, but we won't go into it. Um, so anyway, he's writing this list to them. Not an exhaustive list. But we can assume, perhaps, if Paul was writing a letter to Urban Vineyard today, he might choose some different kind of fruits. He might talk about different qualities in relation to what was happening here. Um, so that just all reinforces like why we should keep coming back to Jesus. Um, Paul's got some good lists, but it's really Jesus who is the plumb line and all this stuff. J- Jesus is the one who we're orienting towards. He's the one who we're patterning our life off as a church. Because Jesus shows us not only what it means to be fully human, but what it means to be a fully human community, a fully human church. And um, speaking of Jesus, you know, Paul probably was riffing on Jesus. Jesus was the first one to talk about fruit, really. He talked about himself as a vine and talked about us as branches and abiding in the vine. So um, this metaphor, uh, this fruity metaphor, really comes from Jesus. He's the true vine, the genuine vine, and we are the branches, as it says in John 15. Um, I will will not read it, but it's there for you, if you like, if you want to go and um, look it up later. But with all of that said, let's look now at Paul's final fruit, which we haven't covered, and that is the fruit of goodness. Goodness. Um, I don't speak Hebrew, and I don't read Hebrew, but for some reason, I do know this word, and I think probably everyone here already knows it too, even though you don't think you know it. Um, because have you ever heard the Yiddish phrase Mazel Tov? Has everyone heard that? Mazel Tov? So the word Tov means good. Mazel Tov uh, means good luck. Or Shana Tova, good year, um, happy new year. So the word Tov is the word good in Hebrew. You didn't realize you knew it, did you? Um, it's a pretty neat little word, Tov. It's a little word, but it's kind of like an atom. It's packed with energy, um, and it really is at the heart of everything uh, in creation. In a way, it's a bit yeah. In that way, it is like an atom, um, despite its smallness. From a biblical point of view, it's sort of the f- the, the the fabric of everything is Tov. So the first usage of that word is in the creation story, right at the very very beginning in Genesis chapter one. It's the word that God uses to describe his own work, his own handiwork. It says um, that God saw, I think I've got a slide actually. Yeah, God said, um, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was tov. And he separated the light from the darkness. So um, 
I don't know about you, but that word good feels like a bit small, uh, even small in terms of our estimation of it. A little underwhelming, perhaps, like God's just created light, and he's like, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, wow, no exclamation marks, just good. (laughs) Um, I remember as a student um, writing essays, probably many of us have been here, um, agonizing over these essays, trying to get them right, and you know, working on them for, for weeks and to get them, you know, just perfect and then uh, finally handing it in when you think it's right. And then agonizing over the weight, when's it going to come back, what's the mark going to be? And then finally getting it back and, you know, reading through the, the feedback and oftentimes in university it seemed like the markers were just right, good, in the margin. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I've worked so hard on this and that's what you give me, <laughs> good. Um, it's like, oh, and if you're off track, you don't, you just get sort of a question mark, not even a word. <laughs> um, so as my other job um, is working for a, a Christian college, and I occasionally get to grade student work. And so because of this experience, I always work really, really hard to, um, to give lots and lots of feedback, um, to provide as much warmth and as much, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Big you know, smiley faces, emojis, exclamation marks, you know, um, because I know what it's like, you know, to receive that good uh, feedback. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, the more I've thought about it, I actually think there's a confidence in that word that God uses. He doesn't need an emoji uh, in the book of Genesis to really qualify. That is, it is good. It's just good, full stop. Um, so even though it could feel like underwhelming feedback, I think that if we consider the uncomplicated nature of God, you know, he's not mixed. When he says it's good, it's good. That's what he means. He sees the lie as good and he names it that way. Um, and in every day of creation, in, in the book of Genesis, and Genesis 1, God speaks, creation obeys, and God says it's good. He celebrates its goodness. So the question is, what, what is it about God's work that makes it good? What is it about God's work that makes it tov? Um, well, if we go back to right at the very beginning, the first lines of the Bible, we see that the earth is created, um, well, it, it says the earth was without form and void, or tohu vabohu. Um, so this this word, well, this phrase, tohu vabohu, is translated in lots of different ways, but, um, but it's mainly used to describe something that's just a wasteland or a desert or a wilderness or something that's uh, unproductive, really. Something which has no form and has no function. Something which has lost its purpose. Um, so whatever creation was before God spoke, it was disordered. It was... Um, waste. It was non-functional. And after God spoke, it was functional and it was ordered. Order came into creation. There's a really good uh, Old Testament scholar called John Walton, uh, not, from the, not from the TV show, but um, another guy, John Walton. And he, he suggested that uh, we modern readers may have approached Genesis a little um, out of step with what the original authors were trying to say. Uh, or author, I was trying to say. Um, we are a little bit obsessed with stuff, like materiality, you know, the thinginess of, of the world. Um, whereas uh, 
ancient people, ancient Israelites, were not so much interested in the stuff and the materiality, but they were interested in the order. They were interested in how things came to be and how things were meant to be. So we tend to approach Genesis 1 as a story with a question in our mind of how did God create everything out of nothing, um, which is an important Christian doctrine, and I'm not, not saying that he didn't. He created everything out of nothing, absolutely. But ironically, I don't think Genesis 1 is really what that's about. We get that from other places. We get that from Colossians and from John and from other parts of Scripture. But, but in Genesis, we're really looking at something else. We're looking at an account of, of how God brings functional order to chaos, how he speaks order into disorder um, and brings it into order. <laughs> so it's quite intuitive I guess if you think about it um, like I was thinking about it for instance about this phone right so this phone um, when was it created I was wondering you know was it created when they manufactured like the case the hard case was it manufactured when they put the camera in or was it manufactured when um, like when was it created where do we date the beginning of its creation was it created when Steve Jobs dreamed up the iPhone, or was it created when the silicon chip was put on, or when it was, when the iOS was downloaded, or whatever it is? When when does this thing become created? Um, or was it created when I turned it on, or was it created when I made my first call? Um, because when it's run out of battery, when it's got no signal, it's not very useful, is it? <laughs> a phone. It's kind of like a heavy paperweight. Um, so none of its origins really matter if it doesn't work. None of its um, story before it got to me really matters if, it, if it's got no use to me, if it's stopped working. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's in a state of uncreation when it runs out of battery. <laughs> it's no longer a phone. Something's gone wrong. It's disordered. Um, it's funny how we talk about our phones dying, isn't it, when you think about it like that. Um, so, so what's going on, I think, is similar in, in creation in Genesis 1. This idea of God creating is God bringing order, making something work. So when God says it's good, when he says it's tov, it means it's working. <laughs> it's doing what it was meant to do now. Um, we see this really clearly, I think, in the third day of creation. So on the third day of creation, when God creates plant life, it says, then, then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was tov. <laughs> so um, what is it about these plants that makes them tov. What is being ordered here? Another Hebrew scholar, uh, Scott Morin, suggests that the significance of these verses um, in terms of what, ma uh, what makes them tov is contained in this progression of, of the movement in the story. So God calls forth the seeds, uh, the seeds that he's embedded in these plants, in this creation, and creation begins to bring forth these seeds with the seeds of future life in them. So God sees this process of seed-bearing plants, producing seeds which produce seeds, as tov. Um, 
Morin the writes, um, metaphorically speaking, if we are trees and we drop seeds but none of them grow, no tov. <laughs> if we drop seeds and some of them grow and become trees of their own but none of them have seeds of their own, no tov. <laughs> the reason why the plants and the trees must have seeds inside of them is so that in due time, those plants and trees will drop their seeds into the earth and further the cycle of creating life. That's tov in this case. Now, I'm not talking about procreation, just to be clear. <laughs> I'm not talking about it in a literal sense. I think he's talking about um, the design of a plant is to do this, right? It's to be fruitful, and it's to produce and produce and produce. And it's the same in our lives, I think. It's, um, it's to be fruitful in our life. God, when, when we're when we, uh, tov, uh, we, we are living in a way that is true to our ordering, and, and it's fruitful. It's true to our God-given function. <coughs> so um, I think what, what these various people are saying is that um, I anything that produces life and contains the potential for more life is tov. Um, so this could be in the form of a seed that produces an orchard, or it could be in the form of a conversation or a story which stirs within us and produces life, which we give away, which calls forth life in others. That's tov, I think. That, that is this sort of fruitfulness of life that we see in Genesis. So we can see the way that uh, in our society, good has been really flattened and, and sort of diminished. Um, pretty much anything that happens to a New Zealander is all good. All good. You know, no worries. Whereas in scripture, tov is this very like laser-focused thing. It's either it is or it isn't. It's tov or it's not tov. If it's not tov, it doesn't conform. If it is tov, it conforms to God's life-giving design for abundant flourishing. So, um, and if that seems too binary, you know, if, I'm, if what I'm saying feels a little bit too binary, I think maybe that's just a reflection of our slackened view of goodness, you know? Maybe that's really just a reflection that we think good can be, yeah, it's good enough. Whereas <laughs> God's like, no, it's good. It's good or it's not. Um, in Scripture, distinguishing between good and evil, that's one of the core jobs of the king. It's the primary task. Um, you might remember the story of, of Solomon when he, um, at the start of his career as king, um, God turned up and gave him basically a, a, a blank check. He says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. What a thing to say. Um, and Solomon, you know, responds looking at his situation and says, you know, he asks God, Lord, give me a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, between tov and wrong. So Solomon knew that, that he needed a heart that was open to God's voice if he was to govern the people and to discern between tov and evil. In all scripture, this, there's this kind of choose life or choose death, this good and evil. It, it is binary. Um, but I think that's the stakes. He, Solomon knew that uh, governing from a, yeah, it's all good, um, sh she'll be right, um, no worries, um, way was not going to be sufficient for leading Israel faithfully in God's ways. He knew that he needed to be right in step with God in order to follow this way of goodness. Um, similarly, Joseph, uh, Joseph from Genesis, understood his whole life story through this lens of Tov. So we probably all know the story of Joseph, but, you know, he had a very traumatic life, you know. 
many traumatic events, betrayed by his own family, by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, uh, imprisoned, and abandoned in a dungeon for years and years, forgotten, um, and then vindicated at you know years later, and um, and all of these events find their meaning later on in life, as um, God brings them together for good. He says to his brothers in Genesis fifty twenty, to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for Tov, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So, so again, um, this is this is how Joseph understood his life, and um, I think finally. We have Jesus. We have Jesus as the ultimate example, like I was saying, the true plumb line for all of us whenever we get a bit fuzzy for understanding these fruits because Jesus was Tov incarnate. That's who he was. He was walking, talking Tov. He was walking, talking goodness. In the Gospel of Mark, there's this really fascinating exchange which I think helps to helps us, helps me to understand a little bit about what it means, um, what what of what goodness means in the light of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus. The text is a bit small, so I'll read it for you. This is um, from Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So the rich, the, the, the rich young man um, refers to Jesus as good. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Good teacher, Tov. Um, and Jesus responds to him by saying, Why do you call me Tov? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Um, so is he correcting the rich young man? He's saying, I'm not good. No, I think, he's, I think it's one of Mark's... Uh, delicious ironies that he likes to do you know um he's 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 putting in jesus's mouth this clever way of saying yes you are right <laughs> you do know who you're in the presence of he is tov incarnate so in the presence of tov this young man walks and comes into the presence of tov and the rest of it as the rest of the exchange um unfolds it seems the young man is on a quest you know he's searching for tov he's looking for it he's lived his whole life in search of Tov. He keeps all the commandments. You know, he's scrupulous. He desires to be good. And on the surface, his credentials are impeccable. But Jesus sees him and sees deeper. He looks deep into him. It says that he looks at him and he loves him and calls him to live even deeper into Tov. He says, come deeper. He calls him to have a hearing heart like Solomon, to see Tov and to walk in it. And 
as far as we know, the young man realizes that he's either incapable or unwilling or whatever it is. He can't, he can't take that step. And so he goes away saddened. But Jesus doesn't respond with condemnation. He responds with compassion and love. He responds with an invitation to follow him and keep company with tov, keep company with goodness. And I think the invitation is the same for us as well. It's um, the exact same thing, what we come to Jesus with. Bearing fruit together is what we're talking about. Bearing fruit in our own lives, bearing fruit with Jesus, bearing fruit together. And I think that's about encountering Jesus as good and letting his words abide in us. And that's just not possible on our own. It's just not possible without the, the support of each other. It's not possible without the support of the Holy Spirit, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's help to live and to follow Jesus. Um, but the promise is a good one. It says that he's chosen us and appointed us to go and be a fruit, fruit that will last. So, as we come to a close this morning, um, I was thinking, how can we make this practical? <laughs> what can we do now? Um, and I just thought, you know, uh, there might be just one simple practice that I wanted to offer us. One simple practice that we could all take home, that we could all ponder this week, that we could all try to grow into, myself included. And I think it's this practice of, you know, like Solomon, just inviting God to give us a discerning heart. Say, Lord, give me a discerning heart that I might know the difference between good and evil. Um, give me that discerning heart, Lord. And I think that God likes to answer that prayer. I think that God really does want to help us to discern what is good. He's not hidden his way from us. He's not into tricking us. He actually wants to show us his way. And his way is an invitation to him. So that, that question of um, that we could all take home of, you know, maybe a prayer, you know, like, Lord, give me a discerning heart. Give me, in, in, in the Bible, the literal thing is give me a hearing heart, a listening heart, a heart that hears. And, um, yeah, I think the, the second invitation that I just was pondering is this thing around can, if we could consider ourselves in the in the jigsaw puzzle where we are and um, and how God is shaping us and what part of us he's working on and who he's working on with us where we are in the puzzle and perhaps who we need to be supporting you know as we're talking like as what Pete was sharing about about sharing our lives together um, just practically what does that look like as we knit our lives together.